Well, we're in uh, uh, this series in Revelation, and it's been great doing this together with, uh, with the others. And we're in uh, uh, this passage in chapter 3, and it's the church at Sardis that we're looking at tonight. I don't know if any of you have ever been to Madame Tussauds. I, I know they, they have, it's not a franchise, is it? But they're, they're, you have Madame Tussauds all around the world nowadays. But uh, it started in London. Uh, in Marlebone Street in London, and uh, I can remember uh, often when I w- we were, our kids were growing up in London, they were born in London, going along, not often, but from not because it's expensive, but we'd go along every now and again to Madame Tussauds, the famous Waxworks Museum. And the celebrities there are really remarkably life- lifelike uh, and cleverly positioned around the place are ordinary people sitting on benches standing behind counters, reading newspapers, drinking coffee in, in the cafe, and it freaks you out because they look so real. Um, it's so embarrassing when you go up to one of them and ask for directions. I know, I've done that. <laughs> you want the ground to open up and swallow you. And Sardis is a church just like that. It looks so lifelike, but looks can be so deceiving. Jesus says to them, you notice in verse 1, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. I wonder what you think a a dead church looks like. I wonder, uh, you know, do you have a definition in your mind of of a dead church? Um, Perhaps you're thinking of an empty, dilapidated building, like that one on the screen, with a couple of old ladies, perhaps, and an out-of-tune pipe organ. Well, in in reality, um, that little church with its faithful few is probably more alive than the church down the road, heaving with people with multiple programs and meetings every night of the week. The thing about Sardis, you see, is that it has a name to live. It has the reputation of being a lively church. But the spirit has left the body. I'm a pastor, I've been a pastor all my life, nearly, apart from when I was a kid. (laughs) Uh, And I've been at the bedside of people when they've died. I've seen the spirit departing the body. One minute the person is there, there's life in their eyes, the next minute there's just a shell. And Jesus says to this church, you have the reputation of being alive, but in fact you're dead. The spirit is leaving the body, and they don't realize it. You remember Samson in the Old Testament, the story of Samson and Delilah? We, my wife and I used to teach scripture in the same school when we were younger, when we were planning a church, and we earned the nick, we got the nickname of Samson and Delilah. <laughs> Ruth didn't like that very much, but I thought it was great. <laughs> <laughs> remember the story about Samson and Delilah, how, how Delilah sort of, uh, she found out Samson's secret, the secret of his, his enormous strength. Uh, eventually she discovered that secret and she cut his hair. Uh, and we're told there in, in the Old Testament, they we're told in that passage that uh, he said, well, I'll go out as before and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. That's the church at Sardis. It's, it's living on its past reputation. It has a, a reputation to live. It's done marvelous things and everybody knows that. 
and we're going to go and do it again. We're going to take the city. They're going to shake ourselves. And they didn't know that the Lord had left them. Isn't that tragic? How do you recognize a dying church, a dead church? What does it look like? Every organization has a lifespan. Every uh, church has a life cycle. Uh, you can uh, plot it on a graph. Don't know how much you can see of that. Uh, it's not very clear, is it? But imagine that graph. It's like Ayers Rock. <laughs> it's that sort of shape. That's the life cycle of any kind of organization, but it, particularly a, a church. You can plot it on a graph. Churches on this side, going up the, up the, um, the graph, uh, are, are new churches. They're growing churches. Um, they uh, will always behind, be behind budget because they're always taking risks. They're always doing new things. They're stretching themselves. They're reaching out. But sooner or later, they begin to, uh, to plateau. And uh, they consolidate, and uh, they stop taking risks. And, and when, you, when you reach that plateau, that's a very dangerous time. You, you have to do something. You have to, you, have to take, you have to put on more staff. You have to stretch the budget. You have to do something, otherwise you'll continue to plateau, and then you'll start going down the other side. And that's where Sardis is, right up in the top right-hand corner. It, it, it's on the decline, it's on the way down. It's not right down at the bottom yet. When it gets to the bottom, when churches that have gone to the bottom, they're really desperate. And you can do something then. But this church thinks it's, got a, it thinks it's alive. It's got loads of money in the bank. It's got loads of people in, 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 in the building. Multiple programs. It's got a great website. It's got a reputation to live. But it's dead. It's a big name church. It's got nice facilities. Plenty of money in the bank for a rainy day. They don't realize it's pouring down outside. <laughs> but they put money in the bank for a rainy day. That's what you do, you know, when, you, when you're on the plateau. You stop taking risks. You stop looking out at... at at the judgment of God raining down on this city. And you put your resources to one, you, you put the money in the bank for a rainy day. That's what they were doing. People came from miles to see how church was done in Sardis. It's a church, as I say, with a great reputation. But it's on its way down. It has a name to live. But it's dead. And that's tragic. And of all these seven letters that we've been looking at, this has to be the most challenging of them all because Jesus hasn't got anything to go good to say about this church at all. There's nothing to commend it. They've got a name to live. Uh, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, uh, we, we, we went through it earlier on this year, didn't we? Hebrews chapter 11, the great chapter on faith. Sometimes it's been described as the Westminster Abbey of the Bible. Uh, because all the great heroes of the faith are there in Hebrews chapter 11, aren't they? Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, uh, Moses, all these great names that we're so familiar with. And, and in verse 13 we're told about all these great saints that are, that are there in Hebrews chapter 11. It's just like Westminster Abbey with all its, 
yeah, memorial stones around it. All these great names that we're so familiar with, all these great saints of the Old Testament. In verse 13 it says this, all these people were still living when they died. <laughs> Isn't that a great way to go? To be still living when you die? <laughs> I know people who died in their 50s, we haven't buried them yet. <laughs> Isn't that a great thing to have on your tombstone? They were still living when they died. Sardis was like that. It had a name to live. No, Sardis was not like that. It had a name to live, but it was dead. And they just hadn't got round to having the funeral yet. It's a tragedy, isn't it? So let, let's ask the question then. Uh, how did it happen? What went wrong? When did this church begin to die? Reading between the lines, I think there are, there are several clues that are hidden away here in these verses. So let me just pick out some of those clues. There are three of them there. Um, we'll look at these each in turn. Uh, in verse 3, for example, uh, Jesus threatens to come to them like a thief in the night. That's the next slide. Now we know that he uses that picture uh, in the Gospels to describe his second coming. But um, it could also be an allusion to the history of and geography of this place, Sardis. Sardis was a city uh, built above the Hermus Valley. It was an acropolis. It was like a great watchtower surrounded on three sides by cliffs. And so that gave the people, uh, the, the citizens, a false sense of security. They were surrounded, uh, well, they thought that they were impregnable. And the church in Sardis felt themselves to be secure. They had a name to live. A reputation to be alive and so Jesus has to wake them up to their danger and he and he does so by reminding them of what has become known as the uh, the thief in the knife the thief in the night maneuver um, twice in its history Sardis had been taken in 549 uh, BC by Cyrus in 218 BC by Antiochus the Great and on both occasions there were no sentries there were no sentries on, sentries on duty and a, and a small troop of crack soldiers crept up the cliff face and broke into the city at night and it became known as the thief in the night maneuver. And Jesus teasingly, tellingly, disturbingly says to this church, if you don't wake up, I will come to you th like that. I will come to you like a thief in the night. I don't know if you've ever been broken into. It happened, we lived in central London. Uh, we, we got, we got, we had a, quite a few thieves who broke into our house. Not always in the night, sometimes in broad daylight. <laughs> and a thief never comes, never visits you. And a thief never breaks into your house to give you things. A thief comes to take things away from you, don't they? And, 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 and there's a spiritual principle here, isn't there, which Jesus enunciates several times in the Gospels. He said, remember, he says, to everyone who has, more will be given. But from him who has not, even what he has will be taken away. That's the warning here to this church. This complacent bunch of people living on their past reputation. It's a serious warning to any church like the church in Sardis. I will come like a thief, he says, and unless you wake up 
to reality, even what you think you have will be taken away from you. That's a wake-up call for complacent Christians. Everyone who has a year, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. So this isn't just for Sardis. It's for us as well. There's another clue in verse 2. Uh, Jesus says to them in verse 2, I found your deeds unfinished. Next slide. I found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Incomplete. Uh, like so many of us, you know, um, they knew what God required of them. But they never got round to doing it. Are you like that? I'm like that. I, I'm, in, my, in my own Christian life, I'm like that. I can be convicted under a sermon, I can, I, can, I can read a book and I can say, oh look, I really need to do something about that. And, and it's, I put it in my to-do list, but I never get around to doing it. Are you like that? A lot of us are like that, aren't we? And Jesus notices, he knows. He says, I found that your deeds are unfinished in the sight of my God, they're incomplete. And Sardis was like that, you see. They, they talked about these things, and they had seminars on these things, and they had training nights on these things, but they never got around to doing it. It was on their website, it was in their mission statement, but the reality was very different. They never got around to it. As St. Bernard of Clairvaux famously said, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Does that describe us? I found your deeds unfinished, incomplete. In the so we, I think we can actually have some idea of what was actually missing in the life of this church. Because you notice there's a clue there, I think, in verse 5. What did they never get round to doing? Well, if you look at verse 5, he promises the faithful few in Sardis who hear his voice. He says, I'll acknowledge you before my father and his angels. Now, that's an echo, isn't it, of what Jesus says in the Gospels to his followers when he, he calls them to take up the cross and follow him. He says, whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. That's what Jesus promises serious Christians who are going to follow him. But whoever disowns me before others, he says, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Do you see the implication of that here? For this church in Sardis? It implies that the majority of people in that church were ashamed of Jesus. There's a faithful few who weren't. But that means that the majority were ashamed to own his name. Do you see the marks of a dying church? Complacency. A lack of witness. Lack of courage to witness to Jesus. Ashamed of Jesus. And then there's another clue in verse 4. Jesus says to them, you, you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. A few. Just a few. But then again, the implication is that everyone else is soiled. Everyone else is morally compromised. See, this, this, this church was being seduced by the world. The world has got into this church. Now, a boat is meant to be in the water. But when the water gets into the boat, you're sunk, aren't you? And the church is meant to be in the world. 
As the Father sent me into the world, Jesus says, so I send you into the world. We're not a kind of go up into a hill somewhere and, 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 and withdraw from the world. We're to go into the world with the gospel, with our testimonies. We're to go into the world, but we're not of the world. When the world gets into the church, it's game over. And it's only a matter of time before that church sinks beneath the waves and disappears from view. So do you see what's happening here? These are some of the signs of a dying church. Complacency, compromise, cowardice, worldliness, lack of witness, ashamed of Jesus. Uh, There's a a disconnect between what's on the website and what's happening on the ground. Pious intentions which never get translated into action. A name to live, but you're dead. Now, is there, any, is there any way back from that? I mean, is there any future for this dying church? Is there any hope for zombie Christians? <laughs> is there any hope for the walking... Martin Lloyd-Jones used to preach whole sermons on, on these words. Yet! <laughs> what a great word that is. Thank God it's there, isn't it? <laughs> Yet! It's not all gloom and doom. Yet! He says, you have a few people in Sardis. See, even a bad church has a few good people in it. I've yet to find a church that hasn't got at least a few good people in it. And there were some in this church who lived up to its reputation. Indeed, Indeed, Sardis probably owes its good reputation to the faithful few. It's often like that, isn't it? A church may have a reputation for being friendly just because there are two or three people in that church who are friendly to visitors. <laughs> so it's got a reputation for being friendly. But on the other hand, you could say, if you went on the wrong night, that that church was so unfriendly because only two or three people made the effort to welcome me. What kind of a church are we, Soul? Soul Church? What kind of a church are we? Someone has said, many churches are like an ailing lung which only a few, with, with only a few cells doing all the breathing. The real life of the church is in a few faithful people who keep it from becoming an animated corpse. That's Sardis. Yet there are a few. That's Sardis. Struggling for breath. it's it's in the casualty room and and Jesus is performing CPR on it. Sardis, it's not quite flatlined yet. There's a flicker of life there still, so it seems. And that's what's happening here in this church. The spirit is leaving the body. You can see it in the faces of the people. You can hear it in the singing. There's no touch of God on the preaching anymore. All that's left is a form of godliness without power, a facade without reality. They know the right words, but it's all a hollow sham. They're flatlining. And Jesus says to them, look, verse 2, wake up, we're losing you, Sardis. We're in the emergency room now. Wake up, we're losing you, soul. Soul church. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. See, there's an urgency about this, isn't there? 
He's speaking to the faithful few. And he's saying, strengthen what remains. Work on what you still have before you lose even what you do have. Where are things happening? Where is their spiritual life in this church? Where is God really at work here at Soul Church? Well, fan those flames. Fan, fan those embers into a flame. Strengthen what remains. How do you do that? See, many people uh, believe that the way to breathe new life into a dying church is to chase after something other than the gospel. Apart from the gospel. Extra to the gospel. There are no shortage of, uh, of programs and methods and parachurch agencies offering all sorts of... Uh, advice on church revitalization. <laughs> but you see what Jesus says? Verse 3. Remember what you've received and heard. There's no silver bullet to revitalize a dying church. You've got to remember the way that church came into being in the first place. You've got to remember what you heard. You've got to remember that gospel that was preached to you. You've got to grab hold of that again. The truth once and for all delivered to the saints. Get back there to the gospel. Hold it fast and repent. That is the way to, to, to revitalize a dying church. That's the key to revival. Both personally and corporately. Tim Keller uh, describes revival as a life-changing recovery of the gospel. A life-changing recovery of the gospel. The, go the, the gospel doctrines of sin and grace are actually experienced, not just known intellectually. And when that happens, the church comes alive. So, so forget about all those conferences on church revitalization with their man management schemes and their business models. You go to any Christian bookshop, the shelves are full of these uh, advice from these church consultants about how to revive a, a, a dying church. Forget about all that. Forget about the five M's. It's the two P's that we need, isn't it? Not the five M's. It's prayer and preaching that we need, isn't it? It's the gospel itself preached in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what we should be longing for. That's what we should be looking for. You see it so very clearly here, don't you, in the way that Jesus introduces himself to this church. You see that there in verse 1? He, he introduces himself as the one who holds the seven spirits of God in his hand. And the seven stars. He's the one who, um, he holds the destiny of the church in his hands. That's what the seven stars mean. Our destiny is not in the stars, it's in the hands of Jesus. The future of soul church is in his hands, do you see? And he's the one who has the spirit without measure. In one hand he holds the seven stars, weak, vulnerable, flickering candles. And in the other hand he holds the pulsating, ever-present energy of the Holy Spirit. And as John Stott says, if only he would bring his hands together. If only he would bring his hands together. See, at the end of chapter 1, Jesus specifically identifies the seven stars as the angels of the seven churches. The messengers, the ones who bring the word of God to those churches, to those congregations. Oh, how desperately, my friends, we need for the word to come to us Sunday by Sunday, 
not in word only, but in the demonstration and power of the Holy Spirit. We, should not be, we, we shouldn't be satisfied with anything less than that. We should be pleading with God every week. We, every week as we look forward to Sunday, we should be pleading with God. We're not going to let you go unless you do this for us, Lord. We don't want to hear another dry, boring sermon. We want to have an encounter with the living God. Bring your hands together, Jesus. You hold the messengers. You hold the angels in one hand. You hold the Spirit of God, the sevenfold Spirit of God in your other hand. Bring those hands together so that the word will come to us, not in word only, but in the demonstration and power of the Holy Spirit. That's what we're looking for in our search for a pastor. Not just a good Bible teacher, or a good people person, or a good administrator, but a spirit-filled man of God. Pray for that. Plead with God for that. So here's the diagnosis, it's terminal, this church is dying, it's as good as dead. What's the remedy? Well, wake up, strengthen what remains, get back to the gospel. But what's the prognosis? Is there any, is there any future at all for these people? Is it all kind of doom and gloom? Just notice as we close, Jesus gives two promises here, doesn't he? To the faithful few to those who have a year to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And that's, that's all of us. It widens it out to us all, doesn't it? And Jesus gives two promises. See what he says? He says, they will walk to the faithful few, to those who, who are listening, to those who have a year to hear what Jesus is saying. He promises that they will walk with me dressed in white. Somebody has said that uh, morally and spiritually nowadays, nothing is black and white anymore. It's all become a smudge of indefinite grey. Isn't that right? Grey is the colour of compromise. It's neither black nor white. And in today's church, there are so many grey areas, aren't there? We saw that during the marriage debate. Especially in your generation, if you don't mind me saying so, as a grumpy old man. <laughs> but in the rising generations in our church, there was so much confusion about what was right and what was wrong in these areas. There still is. When it comes to ethics and morality and godly living, we're not sure what the Bible says anymore. Our garments are soiled with worldly thinking. We're more influenced by uh, the social media posts than we are by the Word of God. But Jesus promises those in Sardis who haven't soiled their clothes, they will walk with me dressed in white. Don't you want that? Don't you want that for yourself? To walk in white? I mean, who are, the, who are these in white robes? One of the elders asked John in, in chapter 7 of Revelation. Do you remember the answer? Who are these? Who are these dressed in white robes? And the answer is, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. And they've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Is that you? Is that what you've done? Yeah, we're in the midst of a great tribulation, right? The great tribulation is now. <laughs> we're in it. We're in a hostile world. They hated Jesus. They'll hate you as well. It's not easy being a Christian in this world right now. We've got an enemy, Satan. He's, 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 af he's after us all the time. We're in this great tribulation, what do we do? We, 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 we cry out to Jesus, don't we? Who are these in white robes? They're those who have 
made them white in the blood of the Lamb. If you know, see, if you know, listen, please listen carefully to me. If you know that Jesus died for you, you will want to live for him, won't you? <laughs> That's why we have the Lord's Supper every week. Because we need to be reminded that Jesus died for me. How can I take that sin which crucified him and, and, and snuggle up close to it and cherish it and, and feed it? How can I do that? How can I feed my lusts when Jesus died to save me from them? If, if Jesus died for you, you'll want to live for him. You'll want to walk in white, won't you? And here's the second promise to those who walk in white, who've washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. Look what he says in verse 5. He says, I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life. On the membership role of a church is no guarantee that you're saved. You do realize that, I'm sure, don't you? You see, if you take someone off the membership role of a church, all hell breaks loose. I know, I've done it a few times. But my friends, let me tell you this. If your name is not in the book of life, all hell will quite literally break loose on you. Nothing matters more than this, than that your name should be written in the book of life. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples? He sent them out on a missions trip in, in the Gospels, Matthew 10, I think it is. He sent them out on a missions trip and they, they, they come back full of themselves. They've had a great time. They've seen demons cast out, they've seen the sick healed, and they come back and they're full of it. <laughs> you remember what Jesus says to them? Do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you. Rejoice rather that your names are written in heaven. You see, you can, you can have great giftedness in the church. You can actually be used with your gifts in the church to make a difference. But it's not great giftedness that, that God uses. It's grace. It's great grace. It's, having gifts doesn't mean you're saved. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we prophesy in your name? And Jesus said, I don't know who you are. Go away. It's not gifts. Let's not focus on gifts, it's, it's grace, it's the gospel, isn't it? The thing that matters, Jesus says, is not, well, you've been able to do this and do that in ministry. What matters is that your names are in heaven. How can I be sure of that, that my name is written in the book of life? How can I be sure? There's nothing more important than that. There's only one way to be sure, and that's to put your trust in Jesus. In France, there used to be an old book. The book um, was the name of a town or a village in France. And underneath, the details of the taxes due from that town, from that community. Now, apparently, there's a remarkable entry on the page for the village of Domremy. Pardon my French. I'm not sure if that's a good pronunciation of this place. I don't know if you know where Domremy is. It's the birthplace of Joan of Arc. And apparently in this, this document, it's, you can see it in some museum somewhere, uh, underneath the, the entry for Domremy are written these words in red ink. Taxes remitted for the maid's sake. The maid, Joan of Arc. See, after her decisive victories over the English, France honoured her by cancelling out for all time the taxes due from her hometown. <laughs> 
Nice thing to do, isn't it? And in much the same way, my friends, under your name, in the heavenly register, there is a long list of what you owe God. <laughs> a long, long, long list. Much longer than you think. It, that list that you didn't even know was sinful. <laughs> There's a long, long list of your sins. It's all there. None of it's lost. It's all there. But across the page, written in blood, red ink, Sins forgiven for Jesus' sake. Sins forgiven for Jesus' sake. That's what the book of life is. It's not the Queen's birthday list. <laughs> it's not an honours role. It's not a church membership role. It's the names of those. Who, like Spurgeon, you know, the guy who came to Spurgeon, he said, well, all I can say is this, I am a poor sinner and nothing at all. But Jesus Christ is my all in all. If you can say that, your name's written on that list. And all your sins, all manner of sin and blasphemy will be forgiven. It, it, right across the name, uh, you, uh, the list of your sins is written, sins, sins forgiven for Jesus' sake. If you've trusted in him, then your name is there. And when the roll is called up yonder, you'll be there. Not because you deserve to be there. Not because of what you have done, but because of what he has done, don't you see? Not because you are worthy, but because he is worthy. What gets your name written on the book of life? It's because you're, you've washed your robes in the blood of the Lamb. You've come to him for forgiveness. You've cast yourself on his mercy. Have you done that? So whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. See, in any dead church, there is usually a tiny remnant who are holding on in prayer and faith for better days. You often find them in the prayer meeting. That's the worst attended meeting in any church. It's very telling. If you want to know, what, uh, if you want to know how healthy the church in Australia is today, Ask, research, look around and see how many prayer meetings, how many churches have prayer meetings. And then go along to a prayer meeting, you'll find in a church of 300 people, there might be 10 people there, if you're lucky. The faithful few, holding on. And the hope of revival, you see, that's what we're talking about, revival. Bringing back to life again something that's dead. And the hope of revival lies with those few. And there's an urgency in their prayers. Sardis is not ready for his return. When he comes, they're going to be caught napping. <laughs> I will come like a thief, he says. And you will, you will not know at what time I will come to you. But this faithful few, this remnant in the church, they're not threatened by that. No, no. They're longing for it. That's how you know who the faithful few are. They are those who, who love his appearing. They're hanging out for it. Are you? Are you amongst those who love his appearing? Spurgeon said, it ought to be a daily disappointment to us when he doesn't show up. Not a foregone conclusion. Even so, come Lord Jesus.
Let's pray. O breath of life, come sweeping through us. Revive your church with life and power. O breath of life, come cleanse, renew us, and fit your church to meet this hour. For Jesus' sake, amen.